This morning, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17, that is where we'll be doing the, uh, that is the base text we'll be in this morning, but you may also do well to uh, maybe put a finger or a bookmark there in Romans chapter 4 as we'll be visiting there a little later. This morning, we're really talking further about the Abrahamic covenant. For those of you that have been with us these past few weeks, uh, we've really seen this uh, promised to Abraham. And today, I truly believe we will start to see all the different ways in which this is accomplished. Uh, It was Sinclair Ferguson, a Scottish theologian, that said God is a a covenant-making, covenant-remembering, and covenant-keeping God. And I truly believe that this is what we will be seeing here today. I know that uh, as we've gone all throughout, we've seen several different ways. In fact, last week, uh, if you were here, you would remember us as we went through Genesis chapter 16. And Sarai and Abram's way of which they sort of tried to bring about God's will, uh, really of their own Desires of their own trying means of making that happen uh, through allowing Abram to marry and have a child with Hagar, and we all saw how bad that went. Uh, But today, uh, we are going to be looking at one of the key signs that God has confirmed that covenant with, uh, and that being the establishing of the physical sign of the circumcision of males. Uh, And I know that I'm very grateful to Pastor Craig for his willingness to serve and uh, to get everything ready as the message goes on. Uh, But I'm also a little remiss that this was the chapter I've been given. (laughs) Uh, I remember when I called my mother to let her know that I'd be preaching this week. um, I said, she said, you know, how are you doing? And I said, well, I'll be preaching this Sunday. I'd love for you to be there. I said, if you'd like, I'm going to be talking on circumcision for about 45 minutes. There was a very long pause. And she said, why? (laughs) Well, this morning we're going to see that it was a very, very important sign that was established here. Uh, And so if you will turn with me there to Genesis chapter 17, we'll begin in verse 1. There in verse 1 it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. There in verse 1 we see very, two very important things that are established right away. That being the age of Abram, who is soon to be named Abraham, that being established at 99 years old. And the next important thing there would be in God's first declaration to him, when he says, I am God Almighty. 
For any of you that uh, may be familiar with some of the names of God, if you are aware that God has multiple different names, some of which he gives to himself, some of which others in praise have given to him, we see here one of the very first names directly that God gives to another person, that being God Almighty. Uh, there is not a lot of Hebrew that is very well known, uh, but this name is very well known. If you've ever heard the, the name El Shaddai uh, is the Hebrew term for God Almighty here. And this is very important because ultimately God is establishing here with Abram at the very beginning of what we're about to hear, that he is all-powerful, that he is sovereign, and these are all things that would be captured there in that name. And yet, as we see God, as he is speaking with Abram, we see God declare that Abram will no longer be known and identified as Abram. And he gives him a new name, that name being Abraham. Abram there in Hebrew meaning exalted father, where Abraham means, as he says directly uh, there, he says that it is a father of a multitude. And so, essentially, he is preparing Abraham to get ready for this covenant that is about to come about. And yet, for those of you that were here last week, we know that his one son, Ishmael, that we heard about last week, and again, we would be reminded that this was not a very good situation. Sarai and Hagar were constantly arguing and bickering back and forth to the part that Hagar ended up fleeing away and God commanded her to go back and be submissive to her masters. And yet, here, we may find this very odd. It would be very odd for somebody who is the parent of one child to be called the father of a multitude. Because we have to think, this would not just be the name that is given uh, to strangers that may not know him, but imagine coming back to your family or your friends and having only one child and saying, you know, this is what you will call me from here on out. Uh, I said that, you know, I think this would be almost like to, in Hebrew, refer to me as yafeh, that being the Hebrew term for handsome. I mean, many of you would look at me the same way you would look at Abraham and say, well, I must be missing something here. Surely there's a key detail here that I'm not missing. Not only do I have a face for radio, as you just heard earlier, I have the voice for print. So, I mean, you'd really be sitting there thinking you must be missing some important key part of the puzzle here. And yet, what ultimately this name truly does is it does something entirely different. One thing that we hear constantly about Abraham, not only in the Old Testament, but the New, is that of his faith. And what this truly does for Abraham is that every time that his name will be said by a family member, by a friend, by a, even a stranger, will simply remind him of the goodness and the faithfulness of God to bring about his promises. And we go on. And we see there in verse 6 another very important statement to the covenant relationship here where God is assuring him. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And here we go on and it's, if we were to skip forward in Genesis, weeks and weeks and weeks ahead when we get to this portion of Genesis, we'll see this repeated again to one of Abraham's descendants. 
And so we can see from afar off that God had a plan throughout all of this. And as we saw last week, the problem that can come about is when we are not patient for God's plan to be done. And we can sometimes foolishly try and bring our own plan into it. We can try and maneuver ourselves around. And so before we dive into the next portion, there is one final thing that we could look at here. That being in the very end there of verse 8, when he says that he will give them not only the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, but he says, and I will be their God. And this is a phrase we see repeated constantly throughout the Old Testament of they will be my people, normally almost exclusively referring to Israel and their relationship to Yahweh. And so we could go on and we will see now the sign of this covenant there. If you'll take a look at verses 9 through 14, it says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from another for, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. And he finishes off and he says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So here now we get to sort of the pinnacle message here. We see something that does not end here with Abraham and his immediate family, but we would see something that would even be instituted there in the book of Leviticus later in the Jewish law. And so this is how important that this covenant sign was to be viewed. Now again, I think that many of us would agree that in thinking simply by human terms that this, again, would be a chapter really we could just sort of skip over this portion and overlook it. But I think we'd be very remiss to do this. Because it's here that we are shown this act that although this is not a new act, this is something that was practiced in other areas of the ancient Near East, yet this was the first time that any sort of theological or any sort of religious purpose had been given to this act. And the pulpit commentary points out two purposes for this sign. The first being, it is a sign of the faith that Christ should be descended from him. And the second, as a symbolic representation of putting away the filth of the flesh and of sin in general. So in doing this, in committing to being to being given this sign of the covenant, they were essentially acknowledging, one, that Christ was still to come from the line of Abraham. And as we know earlier, from the line of Adam. This was exactly what was promised there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 to Eve. That from her descendants would come one that would crush the serpent's head. 
And yet now this sign is given as an attempt to give sort of a physical representation that you are really of this line, that you are of this people. And then there that second sign, the acknowledgement of our sinfulness and the desire and the willingness to be able to cut that sin out. And again, many of us then would look at this portion, not being Jewish people, and we would be almost sort of nervous about this. Because one of the key identifiers with this as well was to have the seed of Abraham separated from Gentiles. We see this all throughout the books of the law. Constantly being told not to intermarry with those of the nations around them. And we even see this in the New Testament even still where the Jewish people so often were just at sort of a mental war with the Samaritans and just that bitterness there because they saw them as being unclean. They saw them as sort of deviating from the line that should have been. And yet for us, there is a great significance. Because if we were to skip forward to the New Testament, Paul later on in the New Testament writes that, quote, the circumcision of the heart, that meaning to be inwardly set apart by the Spirit, evidences salvation and fellowship with God. That being in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. But also, let us go ahead and turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 4, if you would. And in Romans chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 9, and we'll sort of jump around a little bit as to not get bogged down. Paul writes and says, Is this blessing then, referring to salvation, is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So again, Paul is trying to make very clear here that the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians at this time that he's writing to here in Rome, seem to really think that because they were obeyers of the law and that they knew the law and that they were circumcised, that they were so much greater than that of the Gentiles. Which brings Paul to this question. He's saying, is salvation then, are you saying, is only for the circumcised or is it also for the uncircumcised? He's saying, what really was the point of all this? Which is why he then looks back to this story of Abraham, where this is established, and he says, was this then done before or after he had come to faith? Paul is essentially asking, was it circumcision then that brought him this faith? And he says, no. It was a seal of this righteousness that he had already been walking in. And if you'll turn with me also then, 
Just a little later down in that chapter to verse 22, Paul, as he is concluding this chapter, writes, That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it, count, it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So again, he's pointing straight back to the gospel. And he's saying, perhaps maybe you guys have forgotten that it is not your works that have saved. If we would go through the entirety of Romans chapter 2, in Romans chapter 1, he seemingly is condemning the Gentile world of the unbelievers. But then as we get into Romans chapter 2, Paul begins to really hammer home on the faith and life of the Jewish people who have put such an emphasis on works that they believe that their works have attributed to their salvation. And Paul is condemning this. Which is why, just to read it simply for you, I find it necessarily to go to verses uh, 28 and 29 there of chapter 2, the very last two verses of chapter 2, where Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What Paul is trying to establish here is the circumcision was used as a sign. In the same way that for many of us, it was meant to be as a sign for those that are believing. Nowadays, we would look at this more of the sign of baptism. Baptism is used not as a saving work, but baptism is to be a sign that somebody has placed their trust, has come to Christ in faith, and has been baptized. And this is the same danger of trusting more in the sign than in Christ that Paul warns about, as I have previously preached through Galatians chapter 1. The Jewish Christians in Galatia there were trying to add to the gospel, trying to add circumcision as a necessary requirement to be saved. And Paul condemns this vehemently. And so, uh, to quote Matthew Henry in his commentary, as he is pointing out really the point of circumcision itself, he says, the outward sign is for the visible church. The inward seal of the Spirit is peculiar to those whom God knows to be believers, and He alone can know them. This is why there were many that we can see throughout the Old Testament, and much more clearly there in the New Testament. As Jesus often, what He was reprimanding the Pharisees for, was trusting so much in a following of the law. And yet, what he was trying to point out was that you guys were missing the point of all of this. And so he's trying to bring them back to the truth. But let us quickly return to our original text there in Genesis chapter 17. If we will, pick back up there in verse 15. The covenant sign has been delivered to Abraham... And now it says there in verse 15, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, 
You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael may, might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Sarai is given a new name as well, that being the name Sarah, making this much more fitting again, just as with Abram to Abraham. So Sarai in Hebrew meaning my princess, meaning that really this was more for Abram himself. But now that as we see there in verse 16, that kings of people shall come from her and that there are going to be nations that come from her. He's saying, well, now it's less fitting to say my in sort of a singular tense, and it's much more fitting to remove that my and call her simply princess. And so we see not only a love for Abraham, and that Abraham is a part of this, but just as you would remember last week, Sarai felt as if she was really hindering God's plan in Abraham's life by being barren. And yet God here is saying, no, no, no. She will be blessed as well. She's the other piece of this puzzle because this is not going to be coming from Ishmael but this is going to become from a child that you and Sarah will have together and both in Romans chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 11 do we see why at the very beginning there in verse 1 it is important to make note of Abraham's age being 99 because as Romans chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 11 point out, Abraham really here laughs, knowing the physical limitations of man and woman. In his mind he's saying, I'm so old. And yet, we would be foolish to think that this reference is referring to him laughing in the same way next week as we look at chapter 18 that we see Sarah laugh in. Because if, as, if we would look back at that verse, of verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face. Just earlier in this chapter, there in verse 3, after God addresses himself as God Almighty, Abram falls on his face in worship of him. This laugh is not simply a mocking laugh. This is not a scoffful laugh that Abraham has just done. But it's sort of really a laugh of exuberance. It's sort of a, I can't believe that this would happen. And so this is the difference. And we know this because there in Romans chapter 4.19, it would tell us directly that Abraham never faltered in his faith. 
So therefore we know that this was not him laughing and sort of mocking God within himself, saying, doesn't he know I'm an old man? Doesn't he know that there's no way that this could truly happen? Because he has full trust in El Shaddai. He has full trust and faith that God Almighty will bring his will to come. And yet, still though, Abraham, sort of still in this disbelief, like many of us when we've received good news, we almost can't believe it. You know, it's almost one of those times where somebody's offered you this great gift or this great thing, and you sort of say, well, you know, I don't really need all that. If I could just get this, and they say, no, no, no. This is coming to you, and you're going to like it. In the same way do we see here, as Abraham says to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He's saying, you know, God, I've already got this son. We went through all this trouble just a chapter ago. Couldn't we really make this happen through him? I've already received a son. And God says, no. The reason that God says no is not simply that God could not have made the line run through Ishmael and his descendants. But this was not God's will. And this was not God's plan. And yet even still, God shows a great love for Abraham to the extent that he would reveal that even though this was a thought within himself, as Abram is sitting there and we see that Abraham laughed and said to himself, possibly implying that this is more a thought that that Abraham is having. And yet if we would look there in verse 19, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And there in verse 20, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. And yet God's love for Abraham is so deep that Abraham, just as God the Father knows his love for God the Son, He understands this love that Abraham still has for Ishmael. And he says, but even though that Ishmael is not the one from whom I want this covenant line to come. He says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes and I will make him into a great nation. And so here we see God reciprocating this love that Abraham has for his first son here with Hagar, Ishmael. In that he's saying, but I'm not going to just sort of cast him to the side. I will still bless him with earthly blessings. He will have an offspring. He will have 12 princes that come from him. And these things will happen. But in verse 21, but... I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear you, or whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. God is saying, while I do appreciate the love that you have for this son, this is not my will. And so he is promising him not only that a son will come, but even to say his name, Isaac, meaning he laughs. And so, a reminder again of not only Abraham's response, but that Abraham's response to God's goodness to him. And this is what we see in the name of Isaac. And so, to finish out here, 
We'll read just the remainder of the chapter, that being verses 22 to 26. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Abraham wasted no time from God's faithfulness Abraham has a desire to go and serve and listen and show God that he completely understands what his desires are. And he goes that same day and he ensures that all the males within his house are circumcised. And yet even still, we must remember that this physical sign is simply just that. It is a sign of the covenant. It is not the covenant, nor is it the promise itself. Circumcision was not what would seal these men. But just as we had read there in Romans chapter 4, it was those that continued to walk in faith that those were the ones that were saved. And so this is why for many of us it is dangerous when we trust more in some physical sign, just as they were forewarned then. Not only that of circumcision, what a danger it would be to trust that, well, one time in my life I was baptized in front of the church and that is what seals me. That is not what seals us. It's made clear there that it is, we are saved by grace through faith. And this is why Paul, in his summary there of Galatians chapter 6, there in verse 15, he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul is saying, you could be circumcised, you could be uncircumcised. He says, none of this truly matters with it just being a sign of the covenant. He is saying, is there new life that can only be given by God dwelling within you? Has the Spirit so moved in you that you would come to God in faith, and just as we read there in Romans chapter 4 again, that we would walk in it? The danger is trusting in a temporary sign. Even those that John speaks to in his epistle, he forewarns, and he says, you may notice that there were some that were walking with us, and now they're no longer walking with us, and they've sort of gone out. And John forewarns, they are not with us because they were not of us. And this is the danger of even trusting in just a singular prayer that we said one time and then seemingly went back out into the world and lived just as the world does. And this is the danger that can come with trusting in all these things for salvation. We know through all throughout Scripture as we've seen, most notably in the New Testament, that by saving faith, you always, 
Always, always we'll see works, but it is not these works that save. There will be fruit that will become from the new creation. And that, as Jesus himself said, that we are simply the branches. The reason that this fruit comes at all is because God is the root that we're planted in. He says, apart from me, you can't do anything. And so this is our focus here. Is that it is not, have I been baptized? It is not a matter of, do I attend church every week? Do I know the songs that come on the radio? On the Christian radio? It is not, have I sort of stopped doing these certain things? Those things are all good things. But here he's saying, do you have faith? Because if we don't have faith, we don't have salvation. This is the grace that has been shown. That is the means by which grace has been shown to Abraham. And it is the same way in which grace is shown to us. Through saving faith. And so today, the same question stands before us. Because as Paul says there, by faith we are justified. It is by that that our sin debt is covered by the blood of Jesus. It is when we come to Him trusting only in Christ that our sin debt is seemingly wiped away. And so this morning, have you come to Christ in saving faith? Not have you come to church, not have you been baptized, but have you come to God in faith, truly seeking His mercy, truly seeking His grace? And this morning, if you have not done this, as we're about to pray and sing one final song, I pray this morning, if you are not sure, if you need to be shown more in the Scripture, I will put this entire event on pause to ensure that you are walked through the Scripture. Because as much as we may really be hungry, as much as we really may desire to have this fun, there is nothing more important in this life to make sure that we are at peace with God through Christ. And so if that is you this morning, I pray that you would find Pastor Craig, Brother Gene, even myself, because we love you and we have a great desire to see people, not only in this church, but in this community, be saved by the faith that brings us to the grace of Christ and in Christ alone.